Welcome. This is the third Head and Neck podcast. Um, this one includes the sternocleidomastoid, platysma, trapezius, scalini, the prevertebral muscles, and the cervical plexus. We've already met the sternocleidomastoid, which defines the broad anterior triangle of the neck, but in front of that is a thin sheet of muscle lying in the superficial fascia which lies superficial to the cutaneous branches of the cervical plexus, the platysma. That muscle separates from the chin onto the front of the chest, somewhat into the superior part of the posterior triangle of the neck. It's attached to the lower mandible. It runs over the pectoralis major and also, more laterally, over the deltoid. Superior, the muscle fibres of platysma actually extend beyond the chin, and they mingle with the muscles of the lips and the lower face, where they form part of the rhizorius muscle. I've included in the Facebook Anatopod site um, uh, an article by Sandalescu on the uh, platysma, and also one by Huang. There is a proposed superficial musculo-aponeurotic system, the SMAS, which is in the face, which actually defines the fibroadipose mesh network and connects the mimic muscles of facial expression to the skin creases. There is some uh, anatomical variability of the platysma, which can extend as far superiorly as the orbicularis oculi, uh, with both the platysma and the cervical skin having the same embryological myoblast origins. The muscle is innervated on its undersurface by the cervical branch of the facial nerve, and it forms part of the so-called paniculus carnosus of lower animals, a subcutaneous muscle that also includes in humans the palmaris brevis in the hand and the datos in the scrotum. And it's uh, designed in a sense, perhaps evolutionarily, to act as a fright muscle and in cattle as a flinching muscle to remove pests and perching birds. Uh, in the Australian tachyglossus echidna, uh, it covers most of the body and that allows the animal to change its shape into a ball as protection. The sternocleidomastoid muscle. That muscle has a sternal thicker tendinous head from the upper anterior manubrium and a more fleshy and thinner clavicular head from the upper surface of the medial one-third of the clavicle which appears from that as a relatively thin uh, anterior strip. The two heads fuse about halfway up the neck with a thick anterior border inserted um, into the anterior surface of the mastoid process and then on to, uh, onwards to the lateral half of the superior nuchal line. The space between the sternal and the clavicular head is, heads is, of course, a site of percutaneous internal jugular venous approach for a central line catheter. Separate parts of the muscle are recognised as the sterno-occipitalis and the clido-occipitalis, but we don't generally use those particular terms. Deep to its upper part lies the cervical plexus, 
whereas deep to its lower part are the contents of the carotid sheath. The blood supply of the sternocleidomastoid is uh, a proximal arterial branch, that's the sternomastoid branch of the occipital artery, and a distal branch, the sternomastoid branch of the superior thyroid artery. The 11th nerve, uh, the accessory nerve, innervates it deeply, running through it at the junction of its upper and lower two-thirds. There are additional proprioceptive branches uh, for the sternocleidomastoid from the C2-3 part of the cervical plexus. The muscle acting alone tilts the head ipsilaterally to its own side with a rotation of the face such that the face is turned then to the opposite side. If both muscles act together, the neck is flexed, but is obviously also an accessory muscle of inspiration. The sternocleidomastoid is innervated by the anterior horn cells of their own side only, whereas in contrast the trapezius has bilateral innervation, such that the head can be coordinated to turn to the side to see what's happening. For example, the right sternocleidomastoid turning the head to the left, for example, with the right cortex controlling all of the muscles. The movement of the head, the so-called wry neck position, allows the ear to approach the shoulder, and that's supposed by the action of splenius capitis on the contralateral side. Um, the muscle is also effectively, therefore, a rotator of the atlantoaxial joint. It is, however, a muscle that seldom contracts in isolation, and its precise action is more dependent upon the activity of the other coordinating pre-vertebral muscle groups, for example, which cause protraction of the face on the neck moving forward. Of course, it's a major landmark um, for the um, anterior uh, triangle of the neck, uh, which is in an earlier podcast. The back end of that is, of course, the trapezius muscle. The trapezius arises from the external occipital protuberance of the skull and the medial one-third of the superior nuchal line, down to the spinous processes of all of the cervical vertebrae, along with an attachment to the ligamentum nuchae, and extending its origin along the spinous processes of all of the 12 thoracic vertebrae and their interspinous ligaments. At the thoracic spine level, the muscle, the trapezius muscle, is aponeurotic, and it's in a shape of a, a diamond um, with the opposite side. The occipital fibres are inserted into the lateral one-third of the clavicle posteriorly, and then progressively into the medial border of the acromion as that moves around, and uh, as this carries on to the superior lip of the crest of the scapular spine. That's... Uh, shown uh, graphically, I've included it in the Instagram site and also uh, on the Anatopod site. Uh, there is a um, slide on the insertion points uh, from uh, Cunningham. The lower part of the muscle is inserted into the medial root of the scapular spine, more as a kind of recurved or rolled up tendon, often with a, a little intervening bursa in that area. The muscle belies its origin with the occipital myotomes. It's innervated by the spinal accessory as well as by proprioceptive fibres, but from C3 and 4 from the cervical plexus. So a similar kind of proprioceptive and somatic innervation between sternocleidomastoid and trapezius. The size of the muscle actually creates a rather complex action. 
it clearly retracts the scapula, and with the upper and the lower fibres, it creates a kind of scapular rotation, last describing uh, the action of trapezius, functioning more like a, a closing or opening wing nut on the rotation of the scapula. Some of the fibres of trapezius clearly elevate and depress the acromion and the spine of the scapula. The upper fibres clearly shrug the shoulder. And it assists also in shoulder abduction. And acting together, the two trapezii extend the neck. An accessory nerve injury obviously can be tested by the prevention of shrugging of the shoulder. Now, both of these muscles are innervated by the accessory nerve, which we need to uh, mention. It is mentioned also in an upcoming podcast on the um, cranial nerves. The accessory nerve here at this level, at any rate, the spinal accessory nerve, passes out of the back end of the sternocleidomastoid, lying over the levator scapulae, and it's embedded in the investing layer of deep cervical fascia in the roof of the posterior triangle. These nerve fibres arise in the spinal nucleus of 11, the cervical or spinal part of the medulla, in the upper five to six spinal segments near the anterior grey column, and the decussation, re-entering the skull via the foramen magnum where they join fibres, which arise from the medulla oblongata, the cranial portion of 11, arising from the caudal pole of the nucleus ambiguous and near the dorsal nucleus of the vagus, um, and they re-exit via the jugular foramen with the 10th nerve. This cranial part actually is, although it's called the cranial accessory, is more really part of the vagus and it's destined for innovation of the pharynx. The spinal um, accessory then separates after it comes out of the jugular foramen away from the vagus nerve and it passes across the transverse process of the atlas posteroinferiorly towards the sternocleidomastoid. Uh, as I've said here, one may consider the cranial accessory, which supplies innovation to the soft palate, pharynx and larynx, as perhaps more appropriately allied to the dorsal vagus nucleus. And I've left a little article by Resigala on the accessory nerve. Now, in the posterior triangle, there are a number of individual muscles, and we need to talk about the levator scapulae briefly, and uh, then the uh, scalenae um, need to be considered in a little bit more um, uh, detail. And then we'll get on to talking about the cervical plexus. Briefly, the levator scapulae is the next muscle. The thin muscle arises from the transverse processes of the upper four cervical vertebrae and descends down in the posterior triangle to be inserted into the medial border of the scapula from the upper angle to the area opposite the spine. So it's part of the developing upper limb bud and its nerve su uh, supply belies this really being supplied by the dorsal scapular nerve through C345 or some texts principally as C5. The job of the levator scapulae is an elevator of the shoulder as its name implies. But the reason why we're mentioning these is that if one looks at the posterior triangle of the neck then in the root of it are the scalenae medially uh, anterior, medius, and uh, posterior, we then come across the levator scapulae. Then following that, at the top of the posterior triangle is the splenius, and maybe even in the very top, pulling the shoulder down, one may see some of the semispinalis. The scalenae themselves are essentially the main uh, landmark within this lower, deeper part of the 
posterior triangle and the supraclicular triangle as we previously described. The scalenae, the muscles are so named the scalenae. Scalenae comes from the Greek meaning uneven and that's because their lengths are uneven. As they're all of uh, uh, a different length, there are relatively thick massive muscles which lie within the prevertebral fascia which has already been described which run from the transverse processes of the first four cervical vertebrae to the upper two ribs. And their job is to elevate the ribs as accessory muscles of inspiration, but also they laterally flex the neck when acting unilaterally. The arrangement is similar in embryologic structure to the intercostal muscles and the abdominal muscles. In the chest and the abdomen, for example, the intercostal or thoracoabdominal neurovascular bundle lies between the innermost and internal muscular layers. Uh, for example, in the chest, between the innermost and the internal intercostals, or in the abdomen, between the transversus abdominis and the internal obliqueus in the abdomen. That's where the neurovascular bundle lies. In this circumstance, the neural bundle, which is the brachial plexus, lies between the scalenus medius and the scalenus anterior, so that that functions as between the inner and the internal uh, layers, very similar to the chest or abdomen. The nerve supply to the scalenae is by twigs from the lower five or six ventral rami, and these are just locally distributed. Now, the scalenus anterior is the main landmark, and this comes from the anterior tubicles of the third to the sixth cervical vertebrae, and it attaches to the scalene tubicle on the first rib, which is fairly obvious between the impression in front for the subclavian vein and behind for the subclavian artery. These slips of muscle are separate and they lie in their origin, that's the scalenae, end to end with slips of muscle above uh, taking off the so-called longus capitis. And I've included a, a, um, uh, an image for that. So it's a kind of in-series uh, group of muscles, the longus capitis above and then below that the scalenae. The subclavian vein lies in front of the scalenus anterior, the subclavian artery lies behind it, where its relationship uh, then has a first, second, and third portion. The first portion is uh, above, really, the uh, scalenus anterior, the second portion behind, and the third portion beyond. And the notation is exactly the same as for the auxiliary artery, before the pectoralis minor, behind the pectoralis minor, beyond. That's the first, second, and third portions of the auxiliary artery. So the arteries are named in accordance with their relationship to muscles, in this case the scalenus anterior. The phrenic nerve has a major association here, and that runs behind the prevertebral fascia on the scalenus anterior, running from the lateral border of the muscle to the medial border of the muscle. The internal jugular vein runs in front, as does the inferior belly of the amohyoid, and the transverse cervical and suprascapular vessels in the root of the neck, and they're lying in front of scalenus anterior and the phrenic nerve, although they're running in different directions. There's also the relationship to the thyrocervical trunk, which is medial to the scalenus anterior, along with the suprapleural membrane, also called Sibson's fascia, and the pleura, and the vertebral artery, which lies supramedial to that. So these are the important relationships, really, in the root of the neck. To reiterate, the anterior relationship with the phrenic nerve passing vertically down from the lateral to the medial obliquity of the muscle. The nerve then enters, that's the phrenic nerve, the chest, at the superior thoracic aperture behind the subclavian vein, 
but in front of the subclavian artery, passing medial to the apex of the lung on Sibson's fascia and in front of the vagus nerve. So that the phrenic nerve is running forward and medially, the vagus nerve is tending to run backwards towards the area behind the lung root. Running medially is also the ascending cervical artery when that's present, which is a branch of the thyrocervical trunk. And in front of all of this, as I've said before, are the transverse cervical vessels, the suprascapular vessels, and the carotid sheath. And it's at this level on the right, obviously, that the recurrent laryngeal nerve is then given off uh, of the vagus. It's a subject that has been considered in the previous podcast on the neck viscera. And just above here is also a node which typically lies on the inferior belly of the omohyoid, the so-called jugulo-omohyoid lymph node, which tends to drain the side of the tongue. It's a metastatic site for squamous carcinoma of the tongue. Now, medially to the scalenus anterior lies the longest collie muscle. It creates really with the medial edge of the scalenus anterior actually a small pyramidal space where the base of that space is actually the subclavian artery and the neck of the first rib and the suprapleural membrane. So the apex of that space is actually so-called Chassinax tubercle, the tubercle of C6, where the common carotid artery can be directly palpated uh, and or compressed. So that little pyramidal space with the base of the first rib inferiorly, the suprapleural membrane inferiorly, and the subclavian artery, and then at the top is Chassinax tubercle, and on one side is the scalenus anterior, and the other the longest collie. That particular space contains the stellate ganglion, the vertebral artery, and the vertebral vein. And it's typically, as everything, it's vein, artery, and nerve in that order uh, um, uh, that is uh, then seen. The ITA, that's the inferior thyroid artery, arches across that space medially, and below, on the left, the thoracic duct, or on the right, the right lymphatic duct, also arches medially over the lung apex to enter into the confluence of the subclavian vein and the internal jugular vein. But all that can be variable in the way they enter, but right over the apex of the lung at that point is the thoracic duct on the left, or its kind of equivalent homologue on the right, the so-called right lymphatic duct. In the root here, the subclavian branches are in accordance with its three parts, as I've already described. By way of digression, the vertebral artery uh, is also in this region, but more supramedially. It's a branch of this first part of the subclavian artery. It heads above that pyramidal space in the way I've defined it to get to the foramen transversarium of the sixth vertebral transverse process. There's also a sympathetic plexus which lies on it, the so-called vertebral plexus, with a tiny little middle cervical ganglion lying on that anteriorly. The medial to lateral relationship, as I've said, is the vein artery and the stellate ganglion all lying at the back of the neck of the first rib. There's also a connecting loop between the middle and the inferior cervical ganglia running over this artery, and that is called the ansa subclavia. The next branch of the subclavian artery laterally, as I've said, beyond the vertebral, is the thyrocervical trunk, which divides typically into a transverse cervical, a suprascapular, and the inferior thyroid. From the lower surface of the convexity of the vessel uh, at that point, 
uh, coming off the opposite surface is the internal thoracic artery, which is crossed here in front by the phrenic nerve. And I've included a picture from uh, last on, this, on the anatopod site. Anteriorly and inferiorly, the vertebral vein runs forward to empty into the brachiocephalic vein on both sides, and it can travel through the normally empty foramen transversarium of C7, so it can have a slightly variable course. So we've covered really the anterior and medial relations of the scalenus anterior, a lot going on there in the root of the neck. Posteriorly, the scalenus anterior is separated from the scalenus medius. From behind, the scalenus anterior, uh, as we've said before, is the second portion of the subclavian artery from which arises the costocervical trunk, which passes backwards over the lung apex to the neck of the first rib and divides into the superior intercostal artery and an ascending deep cervical artery, which runs upwards to ultimately anastomose with the occipital artery. Laterally, as we've said, between the scalenus anterior and medius, for the embryologic reasons that we've mentioned, are the trunks of the brachial plexus, and then beyond that, the third portion of the subclavian artery. On that third portion of the subclavian artery, there's variably described a dorsal scapular artery, which can arise here running laterally through component parts of the brachial plexus and passing deep to the later scapulae as part of a scapular anastomosis. And that's an interesting anastomosis. There's a natural collection of collaterals, which are already present here between this third part of the subclavian artery through the so-called dorsal scapular artery and the third portion of the auxiliary artery, the circumflex scapular vessels. So uh, if, for example, there's an occlusion uh, between that part of the subclavian artery and that part of the auxiliary artery, uh, then there are natural collaterals around the axillary border of the scapula, which will naturally open up for an occlusion of this, something between the circumflex scapular vessels and this dorsal scapular artery. So it's quite an interesting a pre-existent collateral network. There's a similar network around the anterior superior iliac spine, um, which is a communication if there's an obstruction in the common iliac or around the external iliac between the superficial and deep circumflex iliac vessels and between component portions of the superior gluteal and iliolumbar. So this is an anastomosis that naturally exists between component branches of the internal iliac uh, and the external iliac and femoral, should there be an occlusion at that level. So there are these existing collateral networks that already exist, uh, even if there's a subsequent occlusion. So we've covered really the posterior connections, the medial relations, anterior relations of the scalenus anterior. Next to lie along it is the scalenus medius. It's actually a larger muscle than the scalenus anterior, but it's less regarded generally in anatomy teaching. It arises from the posterior tubercles of all the cervical transverse processes. It's inserted into a rough oval-shaped region on the superior surface of the first rib, but behind the depression that's normally left for the subclavian artery. And I've shown an example of an image from Cunningham on that. The scalenus medius is pierced by the dorsal scapular nerve and by the upper segmental two roots of the long thoracic nerve, the nerve to serratus anterior. The serratus anterior muscle is attached a little bit more posteriorly just at this point to the back of the first rib. 
and the cervical pleura lies just below that attachment. The only other muscle is the scalenus posterior, that's actually a smaller muscle, and that lies behind the scalenus medius. It's inserted into the external surface of the second rib, and um, basically it's deep to the first interdigitation, or the first part of serratus anterior, which is inserted along the outer border of that second rib. Right. Scalenus medius is typically innervated by the anterior rami of the lower cervical nerve. So it can be variable, but it can be C3 to C8. Scalenus posterior has a narrower innervation, usually by about C6 to C8. And the relationships as described for the scalenus anterior muscle are really the relationships in the root of the neck. Those are the relationships for the apex of the lung. Uh, on occasion, there is also a fourth little slip of muscle, the so-called scalenus minimus. Some people call that Sibson's muscle after the Sibson of Sibson's fascia, the suprapleural membrane. And that can lie below the lower edge of the scalenus anterior. So this region, as I've said before, the root of the neck reveals from below upwards, if you're looking at the posterior triangle, the scalenus anterior, medius and posterior, maybe a minimus if it's there, the levator scapulae, the splenius capitis, and the upper part of the posterior triangle, the semispinalis capitis. And this all represents the floor of the posterior triangle. Now, there's a lot of other, in a sense, confusing prevertebral muscles um, in this region, and we don't really need to know a lot about them. They include the longest collie, the longest capitis. Higher up is actually the rectus capitis anterior and lateralis, which attach to the skull. The other muscle of the region that we've also got is the subclavius. Um, the podcast on the cerebral vasculature includes greater detail on the four parts of the vertebral artery. The longest collie is so named because it's the longest of the muscle slips extending from the anterior tubercle of the atlas right down to T3. And it also attaches to the transverse processes of C3 to C6. It is the muscle that holds in a prevertebral abscess. And I've mentioned this before that this uh, was one of the markers of prevertebral fascia. Um, and it was described because of Potts disease or tuberculosis of the upper thoracic vertebrae. Uh, which was a kind of Victorian disease, but did extend uh, right out to the 1970s and 1980s, uh, certainly. Um, but this was the limits of the prevertebral fascia down to the level of T3. Laterally and more superiorly to this muscle is the longus capitis, which passes from the anterior tubercles of C3 to C6 or so, but goes up to the base of the skull in front of a little muscle called the rectus capitis anterior, and to the side of the foramen magnum. So these are just examples of the prevertebral muscles. I've included some images um, in the anatopod site. Uh, those images will appear uh, a little later once they are curated. The rectus capitis anterior comes from the anterior surface of the lateral mass of the atlas, goes up to the base of the skull, just anterior to the occipital condyle, and adjacent to the area of the hypoglossal canal. There's a little lateral muscle there, the rectus capitis lateralis, that runs from the transverse process of the atlas, and it runs to the jugular process of the occipital bone. So they're all going to the back of this region, and it's at the posterior part of the jugular foramen. It's separated from the attachment of the rectus capitis anterior 
by the first cervical ventral ramus, which actually supplies both muscles. So it's a nice arrangement where that ventral ramus innovates these two little muscles which are involved in flexion and lateral flexion of the skull. The other muscle that needs to be considered is, of course, the subclavius that arises from the costochondral junction of the first rib, and it's just inserted very simply into the subclavian groove on the inferior surface of the clavicle, enclosed by the upper attachment of the clavipectoral fascia. And its job is really just to hold the clavicle to the first rib. It's innervated by the nerve to subclavius, C5-6, which is a root branch of the brachial plexus. Now, that's an important nerve in a sense because it may contribute to the formation of what's called an accessory phrenic nerve. And it can actually be injured as a rootlet uh, in a brachial plexus injury. Potentially, it would be a sign of inoperable injury along with other root and trunk nerve avulsions. Uh, when we talk about the brachial plexus and brachial plexus injuries, I'll talk about how the anatomy defines what is operable and what is inoperable, where rootlets have been ripped off the spinal cord and created meningocells. But the basic mechanism can be if there's injuries to the nerve roots, in the case of the brachial plexus, things like the nerve to subclavius, the long thoracic nerve bell, or nerve to serratus anterior, the dorsal scapular nerve, which innervates the rhomboids, um, uh, something coming off from that region, uh, then we know that um, these are very proximal injuries and they are essentially inoperable. So we can test for these injuries. The same would go, for example, if the attachment to the sympathetic paravertebral ganglion has been ripped off, uh, producing a so-called Horner's syndrome. All of these would be sites of very um, proximal injury. In theory, if there's an accessory phrenic nerve coming from the nerve to subclavius, um, then this could injure the uh, diaphragm uh, and theoretically there would be an anatomic variant where a brachial plexus injury with diaphragmatic uh, elevation uh, or palsy could actually occur. Um, the subclavius presumably is there also to prevent shards of a clavicular fracture from creating a subclavian vein injury. Nevertheless, we've talked Firstly, about, as I've said, all of the muscles of the root of the neck here. These are the sternocleidomastoid, trapezius, scalini, and the basic prevertebral uh, musculature. The other area that needs to be considered here um, is the cervical plexus. Scalinus medius and is held down behind the tough prevertebral fascia. It's principally a sensory cutaneous plexus, but obviously with the vital motor branch of the phrenic nerve. The loops form actually very simply between C1 and C2, with the lesser occipital nerve coming from C2, and the greater auricular nerve by junction of C2 and C3. So really quite a simple arrangement. Below this from C3 and C4, is a large inferiorly passing nerve, the supraclavicular nerve, which divides into a medial, intermediate and lateral component. And it's actually quite a large nerve covering the skin sensation over the cape area of the shoulder, extending as far down as the second intercostal space. 
Now, the supraclavicular nerve is one point where part of the cutaneous supply of the upper limb, namely the shoulder, is actually not supplied by branches of the brachial plexus. The other area that isn't supplied by the brachial plexus on the upper limb is the inner aspect of the upper arm, which is sensorily innervated by the intercostobrachial nerve. The intercostobrachial nerve is the collateral branch of the second intercostal nerve running across the floor of the axilla to supply the inner aspect of the arm. And one can imagine really that in the formation of the cutaneous nerve supply of the upper limb, that that area of the shoulder cape region has been dragged down in a sense with development as the limb bud has come out. The other area of the cervical plexus, of course, is its relationship to the C1 nerve root and the 12th nerve in the formation of the ansa cervicalis. So just to recap, the cervical plexus is principally cutaneous, but with the major motor branch, the phrenic nerve, and it has a connection between its C1 nerve root and the 12th cranial nerve, the hypoglossal nerve, in the formation of the ansa cervicalis, and uh, in a sense, in innovation, uh, with the tongue musculature, and I'll come back to that. So let's look particularly at the muscular branches um, uh, of the cervical plexus, then the cutaneous branches. Muscular branches. There are additional segmental muscular branches which are given off to the prevertebral muscles, as we've already mentioned, and these are the longus capitis, the longus colli, and the scalini. So they're all little twigs of the ventral rami. A specific loop comes from C1 to the 12th nerve, as I've said, where the fibres are carried along, or carried to its meningeal branch, as well as to the root of the ansa cervicalis. Now, in the central locations, it's given out of the hypoglossal canal after picking up this substantial C1 branch, the 12th nerve spirals behind the inferior ganglion of the, of the vagus and it emerges between the internal carotid artery and the internal jugular vein and that hypoglossal nerve lies on the carotid sheath deep to the posterior belly of the digastric and the stylohyoid muscle. And here it crosses, as I've said, in front of the carotid bifurcation. All of its non-lingual, non-tongue branches are formed by hitchhiking C1 fibres, which is part of the cervical plexus. And these include a small meningeal branch which re-enters the hypoglossal canal and covers uh, dural sensation, sensation over the dura mater, over part of the posterior cranial fossa. The other branches here are to the ansa cervicalis and therefore relevant to uh, our discussion of the cervical plexus. And these include motor supplies to the geniohyoid muscle and to the thyrohyoid muscle. The true 12th nerve fibres uh, really only supply the tongue musculature and their cell bodies are located in the hypoglossal nucleus of the medulla. So there is this C1 hypoglossal association and this is because the tongue musculature and uh, these infrahyoid muscles arrive from or arise from occipital myotomes. The tongue muscles are formed in that way, dragging the nerve with them by passing between the internal and the external carotid artery. 
as do other structures. The structures with pharyngeal attached to them uh, will pass between the internal and external carotid artery. These include the glossopharyngeal nerve and the pharyngeal branch of the vagus. In this regard, the uh, 12th nerve, uh, without any sensory component, therefore, resembles the oculomotor nerve or the trochlear nerve or the abducent nerve or the spinal accessory. All of these are essentially non-sensory, they're motor nerves. Now the superior root of the ansa cervicalis lies in front of that carotid sheath um, and it is also known uh, as the um, descendens hypoglossy and its job is to supply the infrahyoid musculature. So these are the muscular branches of the cervical plexus. There are some proprioceptive branches that come also from C2 and C3, as we've said, of the cervical plexus to the sternocleidomastoid, and from C3 and C4 to the trapezius, as we've already stated. The inferior root of the ansus cervicalis, which is known as the descendant cervicalis, loops around from C2 and 3, and it completes that little circle on the lateral side of the internal jugular vein in front of the carotid sheath. The second main motor branch, of course, is the motor branch of the cervical plexus, and that's the phrenic nerve. That's principally C4, with some contributions from C3 and also C5, where below the subclavian vein, as I've said before, it may be joined by an accessory phrenic nerve from the nerve to subclavius, which can actually descend in front of the subclavian vein. It can actually go through the subclavian vein, and uh, in theory it can be injured at a percutaneous uh, cannulation of the subclavian vein. This mixed nerve is actually discussed uh, in thoracic podcasts. Um, that's the phrenic nerve I'm talking about. Uh, but it's a mixed motor nerve to the diaphragm, but also sensory to large parts of the parietal pleura, pericardium, and the upper peritoneum of that area that is around the central tendon of the um, uh, diaphragm and the fibrous pericardium. They form from the septum transversum, and so it has a common sensory supply. So the phrenic nerve is a mixed nerve. It's often a question that's asked, but it is a, not just a motor nerve. It's sensory to the parietal pleura, pericardium, and even part of the upper fused peritoneum. The accessory phrenic nerve can, as I've said, also directly arise from the ansa cervicalis or even the nerve to stylohyoid. And uh, I've added a little article uh, from uh, Lucas of Grenada uh, on the surgical anatomy of the accessory phrenic nerve. The cutaneous branches of the cervical plexus. Now, these supply quite a wide area, but they supply the front and the sides of the neck. The first branch of C2, as we've mentioned already, is the lesser occipital nerve. It's quite slender runs up along the posterior border of the sternocleidomastoid to supply the posterior part of the neck up to the nuchal line and the postauricular area. Quite a large nerve next, which is C23, the great auricular nerve that's running vertically upwards on the sternocleidomastoid to supply the skin over the angle of the mandible as well as the uh, sensory supply of the parotid fascia. And it extends to supply the cranial surface of the auricle the lateral lobar surface below the external auditory meatus, and some skin over the mastoid region. 
it passes deeply within the parotid to supply the deep layer of parotid fascia as well. Uh, the interesting thing about the great auricular nerve is that even though it's quite a large cutaneous nerve, um, it can be sacrificed with minimal morbidity, and it's a very useful cable graft should any part of the facial nerve need to be sacrificed in parotid surgery. Um, I don't know why I've included this. It's unusually a nerve targeted in leprosy, in nodular leprosy. The second cutaneous nerve is the transverse cervical nerve of the neck, it used to be called the anterior cutaneous nerve of the neck, and that's derived also <coughs> from C23. It emerges as a single trunk behind the mid-border of the sternocleidomastoid, and it's distributed from the chin right down to the suprasternal space to the midline in twiglets, covering a kind of broad collar area of neck sensation. The third is the supraclavicular nerves. These run down. We've mentioned these already. The medial branch extends as far as the sternal angle and the sternoclavicular joint. The intermediate branch passes as far down as the anterior axillary line, and the lateral passes right across the acromion, down to halfway down over the deltoid muscle and posteriorly over the shoulder as far as the spine of the scapula, to an area some people call the posterior axial line. The dermatomes in the neck in addition to the cutaneous branches of the cervical plexus supplying the anterior and lateral part of the neck, will also include the greater occipital and the third occipital nerves, and these are posterior. They're derived respectively from the posterior rami of C2 and C3 for the back of the neck. And it should also be noted that C1 does not supply any skin at all. C2 supplies most of the posterior aspect of the neck up to the occiput and the auricle, as well as the face over the angle of the mandible, that's the great auricular. And C3 provides a cylindrical area of the back of the neck, C4 extending over the clavicles and shoulder down to the scapular spine. That's the kind of onion ring arrangement of the dermatomes. Connections also between the C4 and C5 roots are large, uh, between the cervical plexus and brachial plexus, if the brachial plexus is what is called prefixed, essentially meaning that it has a higher root takeoff with more uh, infusion of C4 and less T1 contribution. This issue is a little bit more complicated because on occasion the brachial plexus is not either just prefixed or postfixed, but it's, uh, it can be contracted in the rootlets that are involved or expanded uh, in the roots that are involved. So that ends the, uh, this particular um, podcast. The uh, next one uh, is on the autonomic nervous system uh, and outlay of the head and neck. <laughs>